This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is Nicole Berg, president of the National Association of Wheat Growers. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. Learn how a strong U.S. sugar policy supports a sustainable and efficient sugar supply chain at sugaralliance.org. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Wheat Growers President Nicole Berg next. America's sugar farming families and workers are proud to say that our sugar is made in America. The U.S. sugar industry supplies America with affordable sugar and provides good jobs in communities across the country. A new study from the Agriculture and Food Policy Center at Texas A&M found that the U.S. sugar industry supports more than 151,000 jobs and contributes more than $23 billion to the economy each year. America's sweetest industry is supported by a sugar policy that costs taxpayers nothing. Learn more about how a strong U.S. sugar policy supports a sustainable and efficient sugar supply chain by visiting SugarAlliance.org. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Wheat growers are intently interested in discussion at any level in Washington over new farm policy. Whether by budget reconciliation or traditional debate over farm bill titles, Nicole Berg, president of the National Association of Wheat Growers, says they're ready to stand up for risk protection and push for an increase in baseline spending. One of the things we wanted in our farm bill policy, and it was part of our priorities, is an increase in our baseline. And so I think that we would um, support anything that helps helps increase our baseline. Um, when we have a 550 reference price, which it doesn't even across the country doesn't even really break even a farm on their average um, yield, that becomes an issue. And so we definitely need an increase in that that baseline for farm farm policy, per se. And us farmers, you know, we are, as you know, we're price takers, and we can't set our prices, so we have to have this reliance on the government. Um, with regard to that. And so we have to make sure our safety net is strong, very strong, moving forward. So to develop your priorities, what process did you and the board and your delegates go about to come up with your list? Our top priorities, um, what we did was we have different uh, committees. Um, we have a, a domestic trade and policy committee, and we have an environmental policy, which is Title II and regulatory. Um we we met quite a few times, tried to develop policies. We did a survey where we voted on different areas of what was important to us. As you well know, across the country, um, farming is, is very different from uh, my area to your area. Um, and so a lot of people have a lot of different different ideals and different priorities. Um, but one one thing that did float to the top right now, which is very, very current, is the high input costs we have right now. Um, farmers are are trying to keep their pencil sharp and really trying to watch their input. I know that a number of producers of a number of commodities are suggesting two major challenges this year. One is the increase in input costs, and the other is the lack of available water for crops. Uh, That drought area uh, in the Plain States and the Western Corn Belt certainly has been expanding, and you're no stranger to not having much water to deal with either. 
Yes, I'm definitely no stranger to not enough water, especially when I'm in a six-inch rainfall region. Um, last year, I was in a D4, D5 drought situation, and I only harvested a third of my farm. Um, so it, we had an average of like 3.2 bushels an acre, which it doesn't even can't even run the combine over the ground for for those types of bushels. Um, so it becomes very, very. I really feel for. Uh, some of the stories I've heard, whether it's through the Panhandle, Oklahoma, Kansas, they definitely have drought situations that are going on right now. So there are a lot of classes of wheat that are grown in a lot of regions in the country. I would suggest that wheat policy isn't easy. Wheat policy isn't easy. You know, I've always said that uh, a dryland wheat farmer or even an irrigated farmer, we we definitely have a food trying to create and um, the, the science that goes into the food and the wheat and the six different classes of wheat, it becomes definitely um, a challenging um, way when you get to a national platform on how we, we craft and develop policy. So Chair, Ranking Member Thompson, G.T. Thompson on the House Agriculture Committee, brought up the idea of shifting programs. Uh, Title One to more of a margin protection program, similar to what happened to dairy. I'd be interested if you and the board have have kicked that idea around or not. You know we have. I sit on the crop insurance five hundred eight H committee uh, through the FCIC board, and I, I definitely dove into some of that margin protection and stuff. And, and I think it's something that we definitely need to look into. Um, I'm not sure what it would come out looking like, uh, what kind of product, um, as dairy has their issues as well with their margin protection program. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's definitely something I like. What I really like about JT's concept of the margin protection is the out-of-the-box thinking. Because they definitely think that farmers need some out-of-the-box thinking right now with these high input costs. How are we going to have a safety net that is going to help the farmer and not one that has big gaps and holes in it where the farmers start falling through it at a 550 reference price. So I like the idea. We did bring it up um, in our uh, committees. We never really took a formal position on it um, because I think we we wanted to see what it would look like. Steve Sinsky, the CEO of the American Soybean Association, was in this program recently. Of course, Steve has served his time at the Department of Agriculture, even as deputy. And he noted that when the dairy policy shifted margin protection, the first time out of the gate wasn't necessarily the most successful. It had been refined over a period of time. Uh, Chris Edgington, the president of the National Corn Growers Association, said there's a lot more variables in raising crops than there is in raising uh, dairy animals. So uh, it, it's a it's an issue that has a lot to consider. The question is 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 there a place that it can find traction among the grower community as a a feasible means for risk protection? Yeah, I think I think that you really have to like with farmers, they have to see it and feel it and and really kind of try to understand wh- what does it mean and what does it look like because there are a lot of crop insurance like policies or or new ideas that come out and some work and some don't. And so, you know, I mean, I think that crop insurance does great in revenue and does great in yield. But beyond that, it hasn't really been too refined besides, you know, like the margin protection in dairy and different things that have come up through the the grapevine. There's the PACE program right now, which is where you do a variable rate on corn for um, fertilization. So, you know, I think that there's some good ideas out there and with technology and data 
it all, you know, it really does help. But as farmers, for farmers to really buy off on something, they really need to see the numbers and they really need to have an understanding of what does it mean. Nicole, between the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the drought that we have had in so many different regions of the country, people are, are uh, heightened and aware of how important food security really is. And I take that to the risk management agency that has been expanding opportunities for double cropping, uh, largely those that would be raising soybeans and for wheat. Do you see that as a positive step? I think any step to help with food supply is, is a step in the right direction. We have to realize that 70% of the wheat will be planted here in the next couple months um, through November and so across the country. And so it will be interesting to see if we, if wheat acres do increase or um, with this program or not. It's something, like I said, out-of-the-box thinking. Um, and so I, I'll be curious to see how it, how it all rolls out. Do you think the issue of food security and the number of food insecure in the world is finally going to provide uh, some of the naysayers a reason to embrace genetic enhancement or genetically engineered wheat crops? That's a really good question. Um, I had the opportunity in 2019, right before COVID hit, and went over to Africa and, and Kenya and Tanzania. And I saw firsthand the food insecurity in those in those two countries. And I do know that it, it, it's something that's very real. And I think us in the U.S. are, we're like, Hey, you know, is it really that bad? And having been overseas and done a food aid trip, it is that bad in some of those countries. And so I think anything we can do to help supply food across the world and feed, feed, feed the world healthy, nutritious food, I think we need to do whatever we can to make that happen to feed those people. I mean, you even have wheat varieties before the Food and Drug Administration that would be more tolerant to drought. What a blessing for your areas and more arid climates, not just of the U.S., but of the globe. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, the only thing I do caution everybody is we have to make sure our customers want it. And so, you know, in my area in the Pacific Northwest, we grow soft white wheat, and 90% of our wheat is shipped overseas. So we have to make sure that those customers are ready for it. Sustainability is likely to be a big part of the debate over farm policy. Does the wheat industry, do wheat growers have a story and a place at the table in this sustainable intensification discussion that is going on even now in Washington? You know, I think we actually have the best story to tell um, because we are so unique in how we plant in the fall which is somewhat like a cover crop, if you think about it, because we plant in the fall and we don't harvest till the summer. So you have sustainability there all throughout that season. And so it makes it kind of an interesting concept because we are so different planting in the fall. So I think we have a great story to tell. Um, I look forward to the story to tell. We're also working on a, um, a life cycle assessment for our industry. And so we're trying to get a little bit more solid um, research with regard to sustainability and something a little bit more to chew on for people in Congress so we can, we can back up a lot of what we say that we say and we know and we have some data, but we want to have some recent fresh data for folks for this next farm bill coming up. But you also need a determination as well that wheat could be considered a cover crop 
or at least some special definition that would allow you to participate. Even those who don't know agriculture very well seem to think that cover crops are the one-size-fits-all, all-in-all uh, to, to carbon sequestration. And that's not necessarily the case for everyone, especially when you're in an arid climate. Absolutely. Uh, crops, cover crops are not a one-size-fits-all. Um, we also, as wheat as a cover crop, one of the concerns is disease. And so there are a lot of variables in, in different regions with regards to this conversation. The conversation becomes very complex at times. Um, but I think we would have to definitely work um, for something. Our, our group has a, a policy with regard to how we approach cover crops. And it is. There is no one size fits all. Arid regions really, like in my area with six inches of rainfall, I have a wheat summer follow rotation where I let the ground sit follow for a year. And I need to capture every single drop of moisture I can. And that's just where with six inches of rainfall a year, you just can't plant something else that's going to suck your moisture out of your, out of your uh, soil. So looking ahead with debate over farm policy, do you see a tug of war over risk management and, and financial revenue protection versus sustainable programs and conservation programs? You know where I see the, the push is I think as farmers, and, and I saw soy kind of came out with the same concept of this idea of increasing the baseline and that we need more more money to work with for us farmers on that 550 reference price. It really, I mean, for us not to get an increase, even a cost of living increase from a 550 reference price would be would be helpful. But we still have to increase that baseline. And so I think that's where the struggle is going to going to happen. Is 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 there enough money to support the U.S. and help the farmers across the U.S. and their safety net? And in my my personal opinion, I don't think there is enough money in that baseline. I think there needs to be more money in the baseline and, and that Congress needs to help us find a way to make sure that us farmers are funded um, enough for those downtimes that we have. Nicole, some commodity organizations have been very frustrated with this EPA of reviewing and re-reviewing and going back over and testing again and again crop protection products that are vital for their production uh, practices, but also for their sustainability as well. Do you share their frustration? I do share their frustration because we, we believe, and I've, I've toured through the Bear Research Centers. I've toured through Syngenta um, years and years ago. And we have the best technology in the world and the testing in the world. And so I guess I guess the frustration I have is we are so high in technology and so uh, so professional in the how we approach each product and how we handle our products and how we protect our workers. It 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 becomes very frustrating when you hear these certain attacks on crop protection um, products. The White House Council on Environmental Quality has endorsed the breaching of the dams on the Snake River. First of all, how important is the Snake River to the wheat crop uh, in your portion of the world? And what issues do you draw uh, by taking these dams out? 
Oh, my gosh. It, it is such a big issue in the Pacific Northwest. Um, it's probably the number one issue we've been working on in the PNW. Um, I guess people need to remember it's the number one wheat export location in the United States. And so 10% of all U.S. wheat comes through the ports and, and uh, touches the, uh, the Snake River. And so this is a definite, like, big issue to keep our river highway open. Uh, we've done, I mean, I've seen over the years all the, the fish ladders and all the, like, how they, the fish transport and all the stuff we've done, and now they want to take it out. I just, I just don't understand it. And one of the biggest impacts that always blows my mind is, you know, the barging is, I mean, it is 10 times less CO2 than trucks per ton per mile. And so you then are saying you want to take away the barges and you want to either have 144 rail cars or the worst part, and we all know trucks on the road, you can barely get trucks right now, but you have 538 more trucks per barge on the road. And so that just blows my mind. And how would you keep the roads, the infrastructure up if that were to happen? And I just, I just can't believe that they want to have something like that. In the report, though, they never addressed agriculture. And I don't understand why agriculture wasn't addressed. It, it kind of, it, it's kind of puzzling. Weren't there some other proposals with regard to bridges or other means to allow the fish to move up and down the river? Oh, yes. There, there's been all kinds of proposals. I've, I've seen a proposal of um, shipping fish around the dams um, in, like, in, like, these trailers. Um, I've seen all kinds of different proposals. Um, they are definitely, if you look at some of the proposals that they want to do to help the fish, um, they are definitely less. They cost the taxpayer way less money than taking out the dams themselves. And that's not even talking about, like, hydropower and powering our region. I know that power um, costs, you know, for people's homes, you know, like if you look at Texas having those power grid issues or, like, in California, you know what I mean? Like, people have high, high electricity prices. And us, we're very fortunate for those dams up here because it does keep our electricity prices down for us, for our homes. And so that's, that's a big important factor that I think fish and the world and people, we can all coexist. And so we just want to work forth to make sure we all can coexist. So what would be the impact on the wheat growers in the Pacific Northwest and the wheat industry if the dams are breached on the Snake River? And then take it further, what does it mean for consumers and rural businesses in the area with regard to utilities and electric power? So 60% of all barge cargo would be affected. So you're looking at over half of the wheat industry would be affected with regard to transport into the export, which would make it very, very difficult um, for us to, to get our product, like I said, the 538 trucks per barge that would hit the roadway or the 144 uh, rail cars. And so, you know, it's just, it's very, very difficult, um, for us to even, I think even fathom the, the idea that, that, the, that these could possibly be removed or these trucks could hit the road. As far as like, um, hydropower in the Snake River, it heats and cools 800,000 homes. And so with that would be equaling about 426,000 auto emissions into the nor- Northwest environment. 
And so I think that we really need to take a, a, a broader scope of how they're with that, the positive of the dams and not necessarily all the negatives because the dams are definitely have positive approaches to our society here in the Pacific Northwest. Nicole, you mentioned the longevity of the farming operation that you're a part of now. If I look over agriculture and my tenure as a, as a journalist covering the business over the past 40 years, I can recall uh, a, a number of females that have been uh, presidents of the Pork Producers Council. I recall a female that was the lead of the National Corn Growers Association. But if uh, memory serves me correct, you are the first woman president of the National Association of Wheat Growers. Is this a sign of the times? Well, uh, not to correct correct you, but um, there was one other woman back in the 80s, I believe, and her name was Judy Olson that um, was president of the National Association of Wheat Growers. And she then went on to work um, with Senator uh, Patty Murray's office. And so there's been one other, but it's been years and years ago. It could be signs of the time. Um, I never really... <laughs> like said, oh my gosh, I'm a woman, I need to do this. I just kind of head down, let's work the policy. I looked at our farm business plan and realized how dependent we were on certain, um, uh, like crop insurance, these, these tools that keep us in business. And I just wanted to be part of the conversation and not left out of the conversation. And so that's really what motivated me to, get, to move up to the ranks. And I, and absolutely, any woman that wants to, to get um, involved in wheat, corn, any, any ag group, please do so. I mean, we need more women out there. I mean, we definitely think different um, because we are a woman, and I, I realize that. But it, it brings a definite different dimension to the organizations when we do have women and men involved. And I think it, it becomes very fascinating, some of the policy and great policy we've put together. I just think in the day of your grandfather and probably even your father, that would have been unheard of. But today it seems this industry is welcome for those who would uh, shoulder the responsibility and be willing to speak out and on behalf of an industry that's so integral to so much of the rural communities and the nation's GDP overall. Absolutely. I mean, like my, I remember when I, my very first meeting, uh, it was like my first two meetings in the wheat industry at the state level. And everybody asked me, so what is your, where's your husband farm? And I'm like, I don't have a husband at that particular point in time. And I'm like, what? Or they'd ask me if I was staff. And I'm like, no, I'm not staff. I farm with my dad and my two brothers, you know, kind of thing. So once I got over that aspect of it, um, and I think that quite a few women kind of have that same kind of perception or persona at times. But once you get over it, I think more as more and more people, like at the and NOG, when I first started, there was no women on the board of directors, and now we have four or five, and so which I think is great. And I think I, I encourage anybody. I mean, the wheat industry, we're open to anybody who wants to come out and help us work policy. When there's over 500 offices in Congress that we have to talk to, we need as many people as we can because our population is way, way smaller than the rest of the U.S. Well, Nicole, we celebrate your willingness to stand up for wheat growers across the country, your willingness to continue the family farming operation in a very challenging portion of the world. 
want to thank you for being here and a very busy time for you to share with our listeners on this edition of Open Mic. Nicole, it is Open Mic, and today you've got the last word. Well, I guess the last word would be I, I encourage everybody in agriculture to get out and tell their story. Um, every every story, every time you can get out and talk to a um, talk to the press, talk to a reporter, tell your story, get out to the to the like the Rotary Club. Agriculture cannot just tell our story in our tractors to ourselves. We have to get out there and tell the story. And with the farm bill coming up, it's even more important this next year during farm bill um, field hearings. During election season is a great time to get out and talk to those Congress um, men and women and have them help us um, help agriculture. And I guess that would be my final comment. Our thanks to Nicole Berg, president of the National Association of Wheat Growers, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. Learn how a strong U.S. sugar policy supports a sustainable and efficient sugar supply chain at sugaralliance.org. For AgriPulse, I'm Jack Daly.